Deanna is going to read to us from Leviticus 19. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of us must respect your mother and father and you must observe my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. When you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf. It shall be eaten on that day, the sacrifice, or the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned up. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will not be accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because they have desecrated what is holy to the Lord. It must be cut off from their people. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleaning of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that has fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud or rob your neighbour. Do not back, hold back the wages of a hired workers overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. But fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partially to the poor or favouritism to the great but judge your neighbour fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbour's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelites in your heart. Rebuke your neighbour frankly so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Keep my decrees, do not make the different kinds of animals. Do not plant yourself with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. If a man sleeps with a female slave who is promised to another man, but who has not been ransomed or given her freedom, there must be due punishment. Yet they are not to be put to death because she had not been freed. The man, however, must bring a, man, a ram to the entrance to the tent of meeting for a guilt offering to the Lord. With the ram of the guilt offering, the priest is to make atonement for him before the Lord for the sin he has committed, and his sin will be forgiven. When you enter the land and plant any kind of fruit tree, regard its fruit as forbidden. For three years you are considered forbidden. It must be not eaten. In the fourth year, all of its fruit will be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit. In this way, your harvest will be, will be increased. I am the Lord your God. Do not eat any meat with the blood still in it. Do not practice divination or seek omens. Do not cut the hair at the side of your head or clip off the edge of your beard. Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. 
do not degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute or the land will turn to prostitution and be filled with wickedness. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Stand up in the presence of the age. Show respect for, for the elderly and will be your God. I am the Lord. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you are a foreigner in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Do not use dishonest standard when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scale and honest weights and honest ephah and honest him. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Keep all my decrees and all my laws and follow them. I am the Lord. As we go through the sermon, you'll see why I don't go through the passage, each verse in detail. So if you have any questions about specific verses, throw them into Padlet and I'll do my best to answer them. Um, but the sermon is kind of really high level. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll get into it and see where it goes. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word in Leviticus. Thank you um, that it grows us in unexpected um, ways each time we read it. And we pray that today it will also push us towards um, more holiness in all aspects of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so this, I think, is the type of passage uh, most people think Leviticus is filled with. It's a whole bunch of random commands, seemingly unrelated. Some of them are a bit out there, but God just tells you to do them. It's the kind of passage that we cringe at a bit because it's probably the caricature of Christianity that the non-Christian has, or at least the non-Christian that's learned about Christianity from main, mainstream media. And that's the type of Christianity that if it was Christianity, we'd be embarrassed by it. It's the kind of big God in the sky giving you a bunch of random laws and you just have to do them or you'll face his wrath. It's oversimplified and it's just not an accurate picture of what Christianity actually is uh, because we know all the other parts of the Bible. So what do we do with this random list of laws? that God says really clearly in verse 37 that we must follow and keep all of them in verse 37. As we've gone through Leviticus, you might have been surprised that there hasn't been many random lists of unconnected laws like this. There might have been a few weird laws, but they all had a purpose and they all made sense eventually when, once we looked at them closely. And actually, after this passage today, there's no other passage like this that lists seemingly unconnected laws and just tells you to follow them. So what do we do with today's passage then? Is it just an anomaly in this book and in the Christian life? Is this just a list of the random laws that God wants us to just follow and not to think too much about them and just to do them? Are these the bunch of commands that didn't really belong anywhere else? Uh, but God wanted us to do them, so he just put them all here to kind of group them all together so we didn't miss them. Maybe. If we look at the range of topics covered in this chapter, we see commands about 
parents and Sabbaths in verse 3, idols in verse 4, fellowship offerings, uh, gleanings, theft, mixing different cloth, planting new trees, wizardry. Some people see up to 50 commands in these verses from up to 18 categories of different sections of life. Depending on how you count it, you might get more. And there's no solid connection between them. There's some commonality, uh, say, between gleanings from the harvest in verse 9 to the fruit of trees in verse 23. And there's some connection between the deceptive acts in verse 11 with the dishonest business practices in verse 35. But that's all a bit of a stretch to make anything of it. And it's a bit subjective. So is it just random? Is it purely random? Maybe it is. There's some really interesting things to observe in all these verses. Um, And we won't have time to go through them, as I mentioned. Uh, It will take multiple sermons. But we will look briefly at a couple of units. So verses 3 and 4. Honour your father and mother, or he respect them. Keep the Sabbath. Do not make idols. The Lord is our God. If you notice, it's basically the first half of the Ten Commandments, but they're a little different. They're reversed in order. The Ten Commandments are listed twice in the Bible, once in Exodus, once in Deuteronomy. So their order is pretty clear. First, I am the Lord your God. Then don't make any idols. Then keep the Sabbath. Then honour your mother and father. Treating God correctly comes first. Then we focus on how to treat each other. But here God reverses it. It's pretty interesting, right? Have a look at the third uh, unit of commands uh, from verse 9. When you reap, leave some for the less fortunate is basically what it's saying. Don't gather absolutely everything you can, but be generous. So it's this unintuitive way of life, uh, not what we'd normally do. So pretty interesting again. And the chapter goes on with a lot of interesting commands but no connection between them. So is it just random? I don't know how you can say it's not random. I spent a lot of time this week looking for a pattern or some sort of reason in the randomness, but frustratingly, it's just not there or or I haven't found anything. It doesn't seem like anyone else has found anything either. So I think it is random. But what do we do with that? If I just told you, yeah, this is random, just accept it, obey, move on, that would be the most unsatisfying sermon ever, and you wouldn't do it anyway. Why? Because it just doesn't seem right. Despite what the mainstream caricature of Christianity is, we know God's not like this. There's no other passage like this in all of Leviticus, no bunch of random commands. And maybe, I haven't confirmed this totally, but I don't think there's any passage like this in all of the Bible. The latter half of Proverbs is a little bit like this, but not really. And that's kind of another sermon. So it's really annoying to find this here because it seems just so unlike what God is like in the rest of the Bible and in our experience of how he runs the world. He doesn't just tell us to do random things. An important part of our faith is actually understanding that he's in control of things. He's a God of order. 
in the beginning there was chaos and formlessness. And what did God do? He brought form and order. He gave everything its place. And that's the world that we live in, an ordered world. And so the randomness of this passage seems to really grate against that because we don't see it anywhere else in the Bible and we don't see it in our world. But it really seems like it is random. But maybe there's a reason for the randomness. If you remember last week, we looked at chapters 18 and 20, the two chapters surrounding today's passage. And we saw it was about how your sexual and spiritual ethics are the fundamental expression of your faithfulness to God. Or to put another angle on it, being holy in those two things was the fundamental expression of holiness. If you put chapters 18 and 20 right next to each other, they'd be seamless. It would make a lot of sense to have them right next to each other. But this chapter, chapter 19, splits those two right down the middle. It's totally different in terms of its content. But its placement tells us that there's more in common between the chapters than we might think at first. This chapter, chapter 19, opens up with Moses being instructed to speak to all the Israelites. And that's not too uncommon. Chapters 18 and 20 uh, start with the same thing. Speak to the people of Israel. But what's unique here is the phrase, the entire assembly of Israel. Moses isn't told to speak directly to the entire assembly of Israel anywhere else in Leviticus, just here. It's like God wants each and every person to listen in Israel emphatically. He wants them to pay attention to what's coming. But what's coming is randomness. So while it's random, there must be a reason for the randomness. Verse 3, God says to all these listening ears, be holy because I am holy. It's a firm command to do this thing called holiness. A kind of literal definition of holiness is something that's set apart or put aside for a special purpose. Um, And that special purpose in the context of God is to be his. So not belonging to another God or to like the other nations are, uh, but to be holy and separate, set apart just for him. But what does that mean? What does it look like to live a holy life? The two chapters surrounding this one say it was fundamentally about sexual and spiritual ethics. If you make the holy choice in those things, which are really intertwined, then you most directly express holiness in your life. So what's this passage trying to say by splitting the two chapters on sexual and spiritual ethics in half with a chapter about randomness? What's the reason of its randomness? The reason, I think, is that it tells us that everything is holiness. You can express holiness in absolutely everything in life. There's nothing that God doesn't want you to be holy in. Yes, your sexual and spiritual ethics are most fundamental or the most direct way of expressing it, which is what we said last week but it's actually expressed in everything. It's not contained to one area of your life. If you blindfold yourself and throw a dart, whatever it hits, God wants you to be holy 
in regard to that thing. Fraud, revenge, the elderly, planting trees, nothing in life escapes God's call to be holy. So God commands holiness in all parts of life. And that makes some sense of the randomness in this passage. And it makes sense of why we'll mention things like sorcery in verse 31, right next to treating outsiders well in verse 33. But there's still a question about, is this just arbitrary? Does he just demand it because he demands it? He gives a reason and it's easy to gloss over because we've heard it before. But he commands us to be holy because I am holy. It's actually a really mysterious phrase. How's the command be holy connected to the reason because I am holy? On the surface of it, it's not really a reason to be holy. In today's culture, we'd just say, you do you. Great, if you're holy, I'll do my own thing. So for this command and the reason for it to make sense, there's got to be some assumptions underlying it. There's got to be some intrinsic connection between God and his people, some relationship between God and Israel, where Israel should just do something because God does it. And I think that reason, um, that relationship that makes sense of this, is that we're made to be like God. We're made to be in his image. In Genesis, God creates the people of God, Adam and Eve, in his image, but they failed to be his image. And so there was the fall and all the consequences of that. Then in Exodus, God calls a new people of God, Israel, these people here listening to this command. And their purpose was, again, to image him, to be a holy nation because he's a holy God. The very purpose of their existence was to be like him. If that's true, then the command to be holy because I am holy makes perfect sense. Then also, this is more than just a set of random commands. It's even more than a call to be holy in every part of life. It's actually a call to know deeply who God is and to be like him in every single tiny aspect of your life, through every single action of your life. And so when we hear these commands, it's actually exposing a part of God's holiness to us so that we become more like him and so that we know him more. And when you hear these verses in that context, they're still random, but they have a purpose. Think back to that first unit we looked at, the reverse order Ten Commandments, verses 3 and 4, I think. And suddenly you see that it teaches us how God sees the importance of things. When the Ten Commandments are given um, the first time, God comes first because he's God. Nothing comes before him. That's the whole first commandment. But here he reverses that order as if to say he actually values how we treat each other with great importance. It's actually very important to him how we treat each other, not just how we treat him. So when we have the correct relationships with each other, 
we're more holy and we're more like God. Think of the third unit from verse 9 onwards. You own land that you've worked hard for years and um, it's harvest time finally. So obviously you want to go over the land and gather what's yours. You're not being greedy and taking from others. You're just taking what's yours. But God says to leave some of it unharvested. Don't go to the edges and don't go over it a second time. But give some of what you have to other people. And that reveals God's nature again. God by nature is generous. All the glory in the world is his, all the money in the world is his, all the sunshine in the world is his. But he gives it generous, generously to others. He doesn't hold on to what's his, but he gives it to everyone. So when we do the same, suddenly we're more holy and we're more like him. And we could keep going with each command. It'll take a lot of sermons to go through them. Um, and if you have specific questions, ask them in Q&A. But you get the idea, right? Each of these commands now in this context actually reveals a part of God's holiness to you that you might not have seen before. So these random acts of holiness are more than just holy things for Israel to do. In doing them, Israel becomes more holy. And in doing that, they know God more and they bear his image more clearly. This is what they were made for. This is the precise reason that they existed, that to be holy. Their identity is wrapped up with God's identity. They're to be holy because God's holy. And the same pattern carries on with us now in the New Testament age. In 1 Peter, we actually get the exact same command, to be holy in everything because God's holy. So the randomness of these laws was to express the extent to which we have to be holy. So we obviously have to be holy in work and life and study and in church stuff, but we also have to be holy in how we eat or how we dress or how we relax or how we clean the house or how we plant a garden. It really stretches the mind to think how to be holy in absolutely everything. Like it's almost incomprehensible that we could possibly be holy as we sit on the couch. Yet that's exactly what it tells us about God. In every single action of his, he is holy. And not even just in every single action, but even in inaction, he's holy. Remember that third unit from verse 9. What the act of holiness for the Israel for the Israelites in that part was to leave some of their harvest undone. Their holiness is expressed in their inaction. So it's like even it's like you have to be holy in all things, but even in the gap between things, you have to be holy in that as well. It's in what you do and what you don't do. And so you can see how that starts to give us a picture of holy, the holiness of God. It's kind of his holiness is inescapable. It covers all of these things. And so as a Christian, what it's calling us to do or what it's helping us to understand is that holiness isn't an add-on to the Christian life. The passage says you find it and you do it everywhere. 
you do it in the things you do and you do it in the things you don't do because that's the nature of God. That's how holy that he is. That's how complete his holiness is. And so the passage says to us, be like God in everything. Let me pray. Father, you're an unimaginably holy God and you've created us to be a people that are holy as well. We know right now we're not holy, not in everything. Um, And so we ask you to help us to become more and more holy. Pray that the spirit would work in our lives to grow our holiness so that we can understand you more, that we understand more parts of your character so that we know you more and love you more and image you more um, to the rest of this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Q&A time. We've got a couple in here. So first question, John. Uh, so, So if we need to be holy even in things we don't do, what happens if we don't get it right? Mm. So how can we know yeah. what to do basically or not do that? <laughs> yeah, maybe just to clarify that bit, like I, I guess I was um, trying to show the extent to the extent of the holiness that we're called to, right? It's like you don't just do holy stuff. you like even in your inaction, that has to be holy as well. That's how holy God is. Um so what if we don't get it right? I think so probably need to put this chapter into like the bigger context of what's happening in Leviticus. Like God's already made a covenant with his people. He's already called them out and saved them and made them his own. And um, it's those people he calls to holiness. And those people probably don't, well, 100%, they didn't get um, everything right the first time in in the holiness they did and the holiness that they didn't do. Um, so yes, the the with that assumption underlying it, I think these laws are meant to push us towards growing growing in holiness. Um, so in in the New Testament, we probably call that more like sanctification. So we've been saved and now we've been sanctified. Uh, and that's what the, these verses do. They're, they're showing us how much sanctification we have to undergo. It's like every part of our life. Um, so what if we don't do them? That's okay. Uh, especially in the New Testament, um, we're covered by Christ's sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they would have had to do other sacrifices. Uh, but in the, in the New Testament, we're covered by Christ's sacrifice, and that's all right. And in some sense, we are holy because we're in Christ and Christ is holy. Um, and then we'll see the full expression of that when we get to heaven. So it's it's okay. Um, we've just got like a big goal to move towards, but it's okay if we're not there and not doing it, but we just have to be moving in that direction. Cool. Um, next question. How much do we still follow these laws in Chapter 19 on this side of the New Testament? And this person has given the example of the second half of verse 13. So verse 13 reads, you shall, oh, sorry, I'm in ESV. Verse 13 reads, um, do not defraud or rob your neighbour. Don't hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. So we don't get paid every day. We get paid weekly yeah. or fortnightly or monthly. So yeah, how much do we follow these? Yeah. Um, 
I guess so the the whole question of how does the Old Testament laws carry forward to the New Testament is a bit complicated. My perspective is, I think I've shared this before, that the Old Testament has been fulfilled by Jesus and it's been abolished. So absolutely we, we don't do a single thing that's in the Old Testament. Uh, we only, we're, in the, we're, a new test, we're a new covenant people, so we follow the new covenant, not the old covenant. Um, but the God that made the old covenant is the same as the God that made the new covenant. So you would expect that there's a lot of overlap between the characteristics that he'd expect of those people. Um, and so the the list itself is almost unimportant to us. So the fact that it says don't, don't hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight, um, if you're a Christian employer and you pay fortnightly, it doesn't mean you're not being holy in that. Um, because it doesn't mean you're not being holy because you're not following that specific um commandment uh where you would be unholy is like if you kind of take the the character of god that that exposes as in don't be unfair to your workers right that might be a really simple simplified way of understanding the the character of god that that part exposes uh if you're defrauding your your workers not paying them the proper wage or you're like not giving them super or something like that um, in that sense, you would be, um, in that sense, you're still called to follow these laws. You're, you're called to follow the part of God that it exposes to people, not the specific, sorry, exposes to you, not the specific laws themselves. Does that, yeah, does that make sense? I think that. Yeah, makes sense. And to me. Like, I don't know if that person can feel free to come back into Padlet if they want to add anything and i think yeah just maybe one more thing for that um i think actually i can't remember what i was going to say I just went out of my head i oh, don't know ah, come back to it if you think about it yeah all right um another question not related to this, the sermon but more about what we talked about earlier on the service i've got it brent <laughs> oh yeah give it, give it to us give it to uh, us you'll find a lot of the rules overlapping right so like loving your neighbors overlaps uh honoring your father and mother still like all those there's heaps of rules that still overlap uh but the character is what we're kind of the character of god that we see in these r- rules are what we're meant to mimic even in the new covenant okay. and it so, applies so it's kind of like it's what's in your heart, not specifically about like the actual act. Uh, I guess like no, nah, kind of- it is about the act. It's more like it's it's what's in God's heart. So uh, God's heart is that He doesn't defraud people. So our yeah. act, our act in the new covenant, as long as we're not in our inaction or action defrauding people, then we're kind of mimicking or imaging God in that particular aspect. Yes, I see. I see. All right. Thanks, John. Um, okay. This person wants to know, in from what you've heard from other churches and maybe your mates that are in that, how are other pe- other churches responding to the vaccine passport that you are aware of? Mm. Um, yeah, there's, there's a bit of a variety. Um, so some people are, or some churches are, just returning as normal. So once um, the, what's the word? Once the restrictions are eased, they're kind of just jumping back in. Vaccinated um, 
people will return to church, unvaccinated people will stay at home. Um, and others um, are starting to um, voice their opinion politically, um, saying that it's churches cannot, um, I, I don't know how to phrase it well, churches can't be a place that excludes a certain category of people, even if the law um, tells us to exclude those people. Um, so there, there's really, yeah, I guess there's those two categories. There's the churches that are like acknowledging the law and then I guess theologically they're saying that obedience to the government is more important than the in this particular situation. It's really complex, right, so I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but obedience to this, obedience to the government in this law is more important than not rejecting people from your congregation theologically or, or actually, yeah, that's, maybe, maybe that's not fair. Maybe they're saying that we're not actually rejecting anyone because unvaccinated people can't leave their house anyway. So we're not actively rejecting them. They just can't come. So that might be what one side is saying. And then the other side is saying, um, if, if part of the church can go back um, and part of them cannot, then we're effectively rejecting people from our churches. And that's, that's an untenable position to hold as Christians. So that's probably the two um, sides there. And it's not super clear. Um, yeah, it's not super clear. Um, what the right side is. And then I think someone's posted a, an article. Is that right? Yeah, seems like it. Someone's posted an article that explains maybe one side of that. Yeah. So I, th- I'm, I think I'm I've read that article. That might be from a guy named Mike. Is it Mike Doyle or something? If that's the one. So I might have read that. And his, um, so he was he was basically saying pastors should encourage all their congregants to get the vaccine. Um, And you guys might have noticed I've really said nothing on the vaccine itself, like whether you should take it or not. And so I guess my stance on that is that, um, oh, there you go. (laughs) Uh, My stance on that is um, it's a, it's a a taking the vaccine or not, the act of taking the vaccine or not, um, is a bit complicated because it's not purely medical. Um, it's not purely theological. Um, with the government's kind of restrictions, it becomes social and political as well. Um, and I can't tell, I can, I want to encourage people from the theological perspective to think about what um, what things like, say, loving your neighbour might look like in this situation. For some people, loving your neighbour might mean getting the vaccine. For some people, maybe not. Um, that's the that's as far as I'll speak. And then the person needs to kind of take that theological perspective and connect it with the medical perspective, maybe speak to their doctor, connect it with the social and political perspectives, and then make a decision that they're convinced that God would have them do. Um, it's a bit like when when we say for people to be generous in church, right? I can't say 
be generous in church, give $1,000 every week or give $100 every week or give $10 every week even. I can't say that because, like, I don't know your financial situation, all those sorts of things that will influence what generosity looks like in your situation. So I, I really strongly encourage people to be generous. But what generosity looks like can vary hugely from person to person. And same as this, I, I strongly encourage people to be loving. But what that looks like can hugely vary. I think it's really, um, it's a bit unnuanced to say that this is the one, there, there's one right response in this whole situation, and that's to get the vaccine. So I kind of disagree with this, this guy's perspective on that. And that's kind of why I've not really pushed one way or the other for people to get the vaccine or not. Um, there's a lot to it and and people would disagree other pastors will disagree with me on that so there's definitely pastors i think i should be saying um push people to get to get the vaccine um i'll see a lot of that on my facebook feed um recently Mm -hmm. but i yeah i think you're i think we don't do it in other situations we're always very nuanced when we kind of apply the bible financially um sexual ethics all that sort of things we're super nuanced but in, in this particular reason, I don't see why we would not be so nuanced. Cool. Um, uh, someone's posted that that um, link on Padlet there. So for anyone who's interested in um, giving that a read and getting that side of the opinion, then feel free. Um, someone else has come in. I think I haven't read the article, but I think it's the, the headlines is that passes encouraging people to get vaccinated so i guess this is the the other side of the coin this this person is saying that it's not the place of a pastor to tell someone to get a medical injection and they should let each person decide from themselves so there's lots of different opinions um, which is probably why it's a good idea if you haven't already to fill in the the survey so that we know what's going on um in in like in terms of your opinion as a congregation. And that is, I guess, going to be really helpful um, for the EMT in, in deciding where they stand, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. For and, the church. Yeah. And, and just kind of what I was saying before as well, like in the church news segment, like this is so potentially dividing. Um, it's... Yeah, we don't want to let this thing divide our church. Um, I, I would say our unity in Christ overrides everything, right? Um, no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, all that sort of stuff. Like even in our decisions for vaccination and or not vaccination, um, we can't let that divide. And it's got it's got such huge potential to divide, which is what I'm worried about. Um, yeah, cool. Be to see what those survey results say. Um, all right. Well, that seems like it's everything for today, John. So yeah. um, thanks for that.